Blank, and this is America's Web Radio. Today in studio with me, I have David Donaldson from the Atlanta Healing Center, and we also have a special guest, Josh Kerner, who is a family practice resident at Gwinnett Medical Center, and we're very happy to have you with us today. Thank you both for joining me. Thank you. Glad to be here. Thank you. So, Josh, um, you are trained in osteopathic medicine, which some Folks may not understand what that is, and I was hoping that you might tell us a little bit about that, that particular specialty of medicine, how that differs from allopathic medicine, and also um, talk to us a little bit about your, your training experience. Then we'll talk more about our subject, which is what family practice doctors need to know about addiction. So tell us a little bit about, um, about your degree and about your training. Yeah, so osteopathic medicine and allopathic medicine are very similar in that they are both four-year medical schools. Uh, The difference with osteopathic medicine is that you get an additional uh, set of courses in manipulative therapies and the principles of manipulative therapy, um, which is a hands-on approach to um, diagnose and treat um, illnesses and injuries. Uh, this was started back in the 1800s. Um, its founder was uh, Andrew Still. Uh, so it's been around for a long time. Um, chiropractic medicine is uh, essentially a cousin of osteopathic medicine in a way. So for people that want to relate to it that way, we do use um, manipulation um, of the muscles and joints um, mm-hmm. using various uh, stretching, um, pressures, resistances, um, and the goal of that is to um, ease pain, uh, promote healing, and increase mobility. Um, and so that's how it uh, sort of differs a little bit from allopathic medicine in that we, we do use that uh, hands-on approach. That's an additional, I think, bonus for, for folks to have that kind of training and have a little bit deeper understanding of how the muscles, the bones, the joints impact not just if you've had an acute injury or if you have a problem like arthritis or other um, diseases of, of the joints, but how not walking correctly, not having good balance can impact your overall health in ways that many people might not know. So that's additional training I certainly wish I would have gotten in my medical school training. But it's the same medical school in terms of you all take the same courses in anatomy, physiology, histology, pharmacology, all of the ologies, as well as having this additional training, which I think is very helpful. And I've learned a lot from my colleagues who have um, been osteopaths that... Um, very helpful, and I, I like the way that you look at the body system as opposed to I'm here to look at your heart today or listen to your lungs. You're seeing the, the systems and how they all interrelate, I think, better than many um, allopathic medicine folks do. So I appreciate that part of your training. Thank you. Today we're going to talk a little bit, uh, as you've rotated with us at the Atlanta Healing Center, we've been talking a lot about addiction, addiction in terms of how it affects people and how to recognize it. Do you think that it's really something that family practice doctors need to know about? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that uh, substance misuse um, is very common. 
um, in the primary care setting. And uh, unfortunately, based off of the uh, data that we have available, uh, we're seeing that uh, physicians are having a uh, difficult time um, and having a low uh, level of preparedness for dealing with uh, substance uh, use disorders. I would agree. I think certainly in my training and even in my psychiatric training, which is supposed to own the field of addiction medicine, we got very little training, if any at all, in the disease of addiction. And that left me particularly unprepared for the amount of addiction that I began to see in my patients. Are you getting more training these days? You're a lot younger than I am. <laughs> yeah, so <laughs> the training uh, now I think is is starting to pick up. I think we're starting to identify um, these conditions uh, more frequently now. Um, and so we're dealing with it a little bit better. Um, I know in medical school we had dedicated lectures to this, and um, also in residency uh, we're starting to see uh, lectures on this. Very good. So it's, it's been really um, a benefit at the Atlanta Healing Center to have the residents come through a couple times a year and spend a month with with our patients. Part of what I always <clears throat> try to make happen is, is give the opportunity for the residents to hear in the voices of the patients what their initial experiences were like with opiates in particular, but with other medications, um, um, to just kind of highlight how their brains truly respond differently than the, the regular person when it comes to first exposure. Um, because I believe that if, if the physicians are seeing that, then the, it'll help them in their, pre- their prescribing practices. So it's great having you with us and, and here today. Thank you for having me. As we were talking before the show, you had some interesting statistics about the real occurrence of addiction that you might see in your patient population. Yeah, so um, we like to follow the American Academy of Family uh, Physicians uh, journal in our approach to medicine. It gives us a good guideline in in how we should be approaching these things. Uh, And so there was an article written in 2013 uh, titled A Primary Care Approach to Substance Misuse, which I think is a really interesting read. And uh, some of the uh, statistics that they had at that time was that uh, they were saying that 47% of 12th graders were reporting that they had used an illicit drug in the past year, and overall 22.5 million people older than 12 years old meet criteria for substance abuse and dependence. So that's pretty, uh, that's pretty staggering numbers. Those are really high numbers. And I think that because of the scope of the practice of a family uh, practice or family medicine doctor, because you're seeing little children and babies all the way up through the grave, you are not so limited and specialized that some of these age groups that other doctors may not be exposed to, like a pediatrician isn't going to see geriatric patients and a geriatrician isn't going to see small children, you are able to see really the the lifetime and the life course of uh, addiction or substance use in your patients, and you need to be alert to that, I'm thinking. Yeah, definitely. So uh, one aspect that we deal with in the primary care setting is helping to try to uh, screen individuals who are at risk for uh, substance misuse, and uh, we do like to follow the U.S. Preventative Service Task Force recommendations, and they do recommend screening all patients for um, tobacco and alcohol misuse, but still they have to uh, come to the conclusion that it 
needs to be recommended for all substance use disorders, and right now they're saying that there's insufficient data to recommend screening. Um, in our clinic, we do like to uh, screen for uh, all substance use disorders, and there are validated screening tools for that. So once we identify who uh, is at risk or who is uh, a substance misuser, um, then we can start to go through the process of trying to evaluate uh, their disorder. Yes, I was on a, a technical expert panelist for those uh, preventive uh, guidelines, and we reviewed the guidelines for tobacco and alcohol. And um, yes, it's very impactful when a physician talks to a patient about their smoking or their use of alcohol. It has shown to not only help many patients decrease their amount and move from a at-risk level to a lower-risk level of use, but that it also helps patients get interested and invested in potentially discontinuing those substances altogether. Unfortunately, as you mentioned, the data is just not there to support um, the, the general screening of folks for other drugs. But I'm really happy to hear that your program is teaching you about how to screen for the other drugs and the questions to ask and the ways in which you might evaluate a patient to see, are they misusing marijuana or are they using opiates in an inappropriate way? Are they involved in illicit substances like cocaine or methamphetamine, those are really important questions because they think they do have an impact on not only that person's life outside of your office, but certainly many of the reasons that they come to visit you may be related to that. Is, is there a reason why the other drugs are, are viewed as not being something that needs to be screened for? Uh, yeah, that's a good question. I, I think it's just based off the data that they have available at the time. Okay. Of whether. The data is not showing, unfortunately, that a doctor talking to a person about you need to cut down your cocaine use being particularly effective in helping that person actually cut down. I don't think it's so much that they don't want you to ask, are you using cocaine or are you asking, but under the ESPERT, the screening, brief intervention, and referral to treatment program, um, that is a federal program that has been proven over and over again that if a primary care doctor or any other healthcare professional screens for tobacco and alcohol, that's likely to have a really big impact on that person's use. The same kind of thing has not been shown as effective for the other, the other drugs. So, unfortunately, it's still important, though, and, and that's the point that I think you were making, Dr. Kerner, was the fact that still asking about these other drugs and taking into consideration that may be part of what's going on with your patient is very important, and that's how you're being trained, and that's what you've been doing. Yeah, absolutely. So once we identify these these patients, um, we then go on to um, assess them and uh, counsel them about their uh, misuse of these drugs. We like to try to, you know, listen to the patients and really empower them to make good decisions and really educate them on uh, all the ways that these particular drugs are impacting their health. Um, 
once we do that, we like to uh, refer these patients to uh, various other uh, types of uh, rehab, including uh, mutual help meetings like Alcoholics Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous, um, outpatient treatment programs, uh, residential treatment programs. Um, if there's any underlying uh, pain or any underlying comorbidities like mental health issues or uh, chronic pain syndromes, then we will uh, potentially uh, send those patients out for referral to um, pain management centers and also um, psychiatrists like yourself to um, help us uh, better identify and treat these patients as well. So not only do you have to be aware of these um, particular problems that a patient might be having, you've got to assess for them. If you discover that they have them, then you have to have a wide array of um, information and referral sources to be able to get these patients where they need to go. I think that's um, that's a lot of work on your part to, to have to do that in a, a limited time period that you often have with patients. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that uh, the the art of the follow-up is is definitely very important for these patients, too. And, you know, there's really no uh, established guideline uh, to of when to follow up with uh, patients that have these types of disorders. But um, the, uh, the article that I was mentioning previously uh, is recommending uh, four to six-week follow-ups uh, with these patients, which some patients, you know, don't want to or don't have the, the time to follow up as frequently, but it is important to uh, continue to follow up with these uh, issues. And I think that's a very important point that the first time you talk to somebody may not be as effective as you would like, but if you continue to bring it up in a non-judgmental way, inquiring about their health, establishing that relationship, you will have an impact. We're going to take a break now. When we come back, we're going to talk more about how a family practice uh, physician can be involved in the treatment of addiction. Please stay tuned. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. Lawyer Liz. Join me each week as we discuss drones, the Internet of Things, and all the technology in between. It's Buzz Off with Lawyer Liz, Wednesdays at 2. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. 
These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back. This is Dr. Susan Blank, and you're listening to Detailing Addiction on America's Web Radio. Today I have with me in studio David Donaldson from the Atlanta Healing Center and Dr. Joshua Kerner from the uh, Gwinnett Medical Center Family Practice Residency Program. Uh, Dr. Kerner has been involved in working with us at the Atlanta Healing Center and working with our patients. We ask him today to come and talk to us a little bit more about the way in which a family practice uh, physician might be involved in the treatment of a patient. So first I'd like to focus on directly treating addiction, and then I think um, as the show progresses, we'll talk more about the ways in which the family practice um, physician will be involved in treating a lot of the other problems that are generated when someone has the disease of addiction, some of the psychological problems and some of certainly the physical problems that many of them have as consequence of their drug use. I know that the um, American Society of Addiction Medicine and the American Society of Inter, um, Interventional Pain Physicians that um, the um, American Academy of Addiction Psychiatry, SAMHSA, uh, many of these organizations have been very overwhelmed by the amount of um, people that are involved with the opiate crisis and that we are recognizing, unfortunately, that if we had um, full reimbursement today and everybody motivated to get into treatment today, we do not have the manpower, we do not have the workforce, people are not trained to manage this disease. So there's been a real focus on primary care doctors as being a a, a valuable resource and being able to not just refer to treatment, but also be able to provide some medications and some pharmacotherapy, medication-assisted recovery for patients in the opiate crisis and in other uh, situations. So one of the medications that can be really helpful both for alcohol and for opiates um, is the medication called naltrexone, which is an opiate blocker medication. Um, They've talked to you about using this in helping people um, with cravings for alcohol and for opiates? Yeah, so um, naltrexone is one of the tools that we can use um, in our toolbox uh, for uh, managing uh, different types of um, addictions. Um, And so uh, with the um, naltrexone itself, um, it uh, it blocks the um, opioid receptors and blocks the effects of the opioid agonists 
um, which can uh, prevent impulsive use of opioids in patients receiving naltrexone. Um, and so it gives patients an opportunity to uh, prevent relapse and uh, get support. Um, there are different uh, formulations of the mm-hmm. uh, naltrexone. Um, I don't know if you wanted to sure. talk a little bit about uh, that. I know that's your yes, specialty. Please, <laughs> please share that with um, with our um, audience. Uh, yeah, so there's uh, different formulations. There are there's a, an oral tablet, and there's also um, an injection. Uh, the injection is more commonly uh, known as uh, Vivitrol. Right. Um, and uh, it was uh, initially uh, used for alcohol dependence, and it was uh, recently uh, approved for opioid dependence as well. And that injection is very helpful in that the patient takes that once a month and it provides them protection throughout the month. And it is, uh, for the opiate user, uh, very helpful in the sense that they know that if they try and use uh, an opioid, um, whether that's heroin, whether that's um, a, a pain medication, a Percocet or an Oxycontin, that those receptors are blocked and they're not going to be able to have a response from that. And because of that, uh, gives them that second of let me wait, let me think, am I wasting my time, am I wasting my money, am I going to um, really go ahead and do this? And sometimes having that on board helps the person resist the temptation to, to go and use. So for the, also for the alcoholic, who's the, the type that wants to get a high from alcohol or get that really good buzz feeling, it blocks that. Um, and, and so initially it was it was released for the alcoholic because it would stop their ability to get high. There are classes of alcoholics that, that are drinking for different reasons, and it's less effective there. Um, but certainly for the, the ones that are drinking for the party, <coughs> Vivitrol is very effective at stopping the party. And there is actually a method that um, I know we've used very selectively at the Atlanta Healing Center called the Sinclair Method that was developed over in England. It has to do with using naltrexone when the person, the right type of alcoholic, tries to drink. They can still get intoxicated. They still feel the effects of alcohol with the naltrexone, but they don't get the buzz. They don't get the high. And because of that, they're wondering, why am I wasting my time and my money? Because this isn't doing for me what it used to do. And that is one way that sometimes people are able to certainly reduce their alcohol consumption, and many times they're able to move on into abstinence where they they don't drink at all. So there's a couple of ways in which naltrexone and the oral form is relatively inexpensive, that certainly a family practice doctor could prescribe this and be really helpful because less than 10% of people with the disease of addiction actually get any kind of treatment. And when you think about that and know that that less than 30% of folks who do get treatment actually get pharmacotherapy, we begin to see the scope of the problem and the, the tremendous need for primary care doctors to be involved in active treatment. So naltrexone's a good medication and one that's been around for a long time. The, the use of it, I just want to throw that in, for alcohol craving reduction, 
the um, that that particular method calls for the oral use of, yes. of naltrexone, the pill form. So it's making that direct connection of I take this medication and I'm protected. When somebody's doing the 30 day shot, their brain doesn't tend to make that connection. So just throwing that in for for reference. <laughs> That's a good point. Right, and so it is it is the the recommended that uh, that people use the oral form, particularly if that's going to be um, a method they're going to try. Right. A particular method of um, of getting to decreased alcohol use and hopefully eventually to abstinence from alcohol. So there's another medication that is FDA approved if we stay on the opiate crisis for a minute and that's the buprenorphine naltrexone combination or the buprenorphine by itself. There's some common names for this. Um, yeah, so um, buprenorphine um, itself is a uh, partial agonist of the mu opioid receptors, and there are a couple of formulations approved by the FDA uh, for treatment of opioid dependence, um, including sublingual uh, buprenorphine and sublingual uh, buprenorphine naloxone tablets or strips, uh, which are uh, more commonly known as uh, suboxone. Right. There's also um, a couple of different formulations, one that you use inside your cheek that would be called Zubsolve. There's um, a formulation that is in a pellet form that is um, inserted under the skin and is active for four to six months. And I've um, heard rumors, I'm very hopeful, that the long-acting buprenorphine injection will be available sometime by the end of 2017. And this will be similar in terms of um, a long-term effective medication for um, treatment of opiate dependence that like Vivitrol, it um, blocks the body's response to the uh, the use of that medication or the use of heroin, but it also provides some agonist um, or direct action on the opiate receptors. So the cravings are much better um, managed with this medication, and you can also it can also be helpful for acute or chronic pain. Yeah, and so um, like the article is mentioning, uh, brief uh, treatment periods uh, with rapid medication tapers are associated with higher rates of relapse. And right. I know that um, in your clinic, uh, you do like to use the uh, maintenance uh, treatments, mm-hmm. which has been shown to be uh, pretty safe and effective for these types of patients. So it's very uh, helpful. And at the Atlantis Healing Center, we certainly recommend that most patients stay on the medication for at least 13 months. And this was a David Donaldson recommendation. Um, yeah, it was it was certainly one I'd heard before from other other medications. But with this one in particular, it, it's about helping the person get through birthdays and holidays and Christmas and New Year's and Fourth of July and and learning to manage all of the various stressors that you experience in, in a year's time plus a month. Plus and then at that point, beginning the taper schedule, mm-hmm. which which for most people is also another couple month process. So it's it's a it's a lengthy period of helping somebody have the time they need to be able to get their life stabilized and also to get connect with um, the support system and to utilize that support st- system to show they can manage life and stress mm-hmm. while they still have the support of the medication. 
Um, and I, I believe this is a Schedule III yes. uh, medication. And also for physicians who want to prescribe this medication, I believe they need to complete um, eight hours of training. Is that right? That's correct. And you also have to get a waiver uh, for the Center of Abuse, uh, Substance Abuse Treatment and Drug Enforcement Administration and also complete uh, other various training uh, protocols with this medication. So it's... Uh, it is something that will require, I think, family physicians to dedicate a little bit of time and uh, resources to be able to prescribe. It, it is. It is a little bit of extra work. The value, though, in being able to provide this treatment for patients that are in already your patients that are in need of help that may or may not be able to find the help anywhere else. This is the this is the critical point, and this is the the big push that those of us who are work full-time in addiction really wanting to encourage primary care doctors and other health care providers to get involved in this because we don't have enough resources. It's not rocket science. It takes a little bit of finesse here and there not to make somebody sicker uh, when, they <laughs> when they first take the medication, but to get it on board and to help that person be managed. It really gives them their life back and the support that you can provide them by referring them to a therapist or having a therapist in your clinic do groups with them, do some individual work, and making sure that um, they're monitored with drug testing and that you're in compliance with the DEA, the Drug Enforcement Agency that oversees this um, use of this medication. All of these things are a little bit of an added task for the primary care physician, but certainly one that most uh, primary care practices uh, could fit into their um, into their toolbox. I like your word, into their toolbox to be able to provide the support their patient really needs. We're going to take another break. When we come back, we'll talk a little bit more about medication-assisted recovery and how family care can be a big part of addiction treatment. Thanks for listening. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. Did you miss a show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. Obamacare is failing. We all know that, but you need to know why and what you can do to get us back on the right track. Visit us at ObamacareWatch.org. This is Grace Marie Turner of the Galen Institute. Join us at ObamacareWatch.org. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, 
but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key and the trained staff at EHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back. This is Detailing Addiction, and I'm Dr. Susan Blank. You're listening to America's Web Radio. And today in studio, I have with me David Donaldson from the Atlanta Healing Center and Dr. Josh Kerner from Gwinnett Medical Center Family Practice Residency Program. Right before the break, we were talking about the important role and hopefully the increasing role that family practice and primary care doctors will have in the treatment of particularly opiate um, crisis and helping uh, patients, so many patients who actually need treatment and need medication-assisted recovery. Um, you were pointing out a really important um, bit of information that our our listening audience might be interested in, which has to do with the Cochrane reports. Yeah, so um, one of the uh, key recommendations for practice for uh, practicing family physicians uh, was that office-based pharmacotherapy for opioid dependence using buprenorphine is safe and effective, and that was a a grade-A evidence um, sourced from the Cochrane Review and other multiple randomized control trials. I think that's really important to take into consideration um, with some of the hesitancy surrounding uh, prescribing this medication. It, yes. So you don't get any better than a, a level A. And for our listeners that might not be familiar with Cochrane, this is a an institution that reviews all the literature, pretty much at least the English literature and sometimes uh, literature from other countries, and goes through and rates how well this study was done, how clear is the evidence, how clear are the outcomes, what are the risks and benefits, and then they make recommendations. And an A-level recommendation is the highest level, that meaning that there is good, strong, supportive, valid evidence that providing this treatment in primary care is extremely valuable and from my standpoint it's very needed that primary care doctors need to have this training and to be invested and involved in helping us save some lives. Yeah, and so one of the other um, grade A recommendations that kind of helps us transition to the next topic um, is that uh, patients with substance use disorders um, may benefit from identification and treatment of comorbid psychiatric disorders. Um, And so that kind of helps us transition to the um, next uh, piece of the puzzle when it comes to treating um, uh, patients who are uh, misusing substances is that they do carry a um, higher incidence of comorbidities, including um, anxiety, depression, bipolar disorder, PTSD, intimate partner violence, trauma, suicide, and homelessness. 
And these are big problems, and if they're not stable, it's going to be very, very difficult for a person to get in and maintain sustained recovery. So looking for these other problems, and it's estimated in, at least in the treatment population, folks that make it to a... um, a residential level of treatment that as many as 85% of these folks have a depression or an anxiety or or other mental illness that um, has a big impact on on their their life and on their um, possibilities of recovery. So when you're seeing patients, how do you evaluate for that? Yeah, so once we see uh, a patient in our clinic, we do a complete and thorough evaluation on their history. Um, and part of that, uh, with their annual physical at least, is to screen for uh, depression. It is a uh, recommendation by the USPSTF to, to screen for depression. And so uh, we, we go ahead and do that using the, uh, the PHQ-9. Uh, and we go through that, and we uh, evaluate whether or not a patient is uh, or depressed or not. And it is becoming one of the most common uh, disorders that we see in the primary care setting. And so we are getting very good at uh, learning how to identify and treat these patients, uh, not just those who uh, do misuse substances, but um, just the general population. And uh, we, we do like to use a, a very thorough, systematic approach in terms of their treatment. Uh, we don't like to just uh, stick patients on, you know, medications. We do like to use a more complete approach in uh, counseling them uh, and treating and searching for any other underlying medical uh, conditions that may be uh, contributing to uh, their depression. Really important. And because depression is such a common illness, it's one that's really uh, critical Because, again, attached with um, depression, just like addiction, there is a high rate of morbidity and mortality, meaning um, a significant impact on their their health and their lifestyle. But there's also people who are depressed are more likely to attempt and complete suicide. And, again, we're talking early death for many patients, whether from addiction or from from suicide, from a depression or from an anxiety disorder. And, and this, this is many years cut off a person's life, which is very unfortunate and tragic. It's horrible when that happens, but it's very common. And again, uh, primary care doctors can pay a big role in identifying this, particularly in in young um, young adults, adolescents, and children. It, it's not just the adult population that has problems with depression and anxiety. Yeah. So one other. Um big one that unfortunately uh, we've had to uh, see in the in the clinic is uh, intimate partner violence and that will go along with the uh, substance use disorders um, men and women who uh, misuse illicit drugs are at increased risk for being victims um, and perpetrators of intimate partner violence um, and uh, there are some estimations that this could exceed uh, 50% in patients with some uh, drug use disorders in certain settings so it is important for uh, the family physician and primary care physician to uh, screen uh, patients who present with substance use 
use disorders for intimate partner violence. This used to be uh, termed domestic violence for people who are used to saying domestic violence. They've re-termed this intimate partner violence. And so one of the interesting aspects to our training in the family medicine setting, uh, family medicine setting at uh, Gwinnett Medical Center is that we do uh, get to see what resources are available in our community to refer mm-hmm. patients who have uh, experienced intimate partner violence to get uh, help and treatment. And sometimes this is identified um, by the presenting problem. The patient may come in with injuries that may be difficult to explain, or the story, I'm using air quotes here, the story that is told is not consistent with how they might have gotten those injuries, and it's a real important question, and for a long time, this has just not been something that people talk about or ask about, and many times, uh, serious injury uh, can develop, so I'm really glad to hear you guys are, are doing that and involved in screening for and recommending treatment for these folks. Yeah, absolutely. And I think one other uh, big issue, too, with uh, these folks is is homelessness. And we we do have a lot of lower-income patients in our clinic. And knowing the resources available in the community to help these people out, um, you know, to get the resources to uh, get back on their feet is really important as well. So things like um, a shelter, what... What kinds of resources yeah, do you look for? So homeless uh, shelters are definitely one of our big resources that we'll, that we'll use. Um, additionally, there are uh, resources specifically in Gwinnett County, which is where we practice. There, um, There is a helpline uh, for folks to call into, and it's called the Gwinnett Helpline. There's a whole website and phone number attached with that. I don't have that offhand. But they, uh, they do help uh, connect uh, our patients to either resources within the community, but also resources that are available in the state and there's databases that um, that help with that and then also they are good about uh, supplying bags of supplies uh, for folks who are also experiencing homelessness. And often it's important if um, a spouse or a, a significant other is a victim of violence to be able to go to shelters that are uh, more private you don't know the location as a protection so that uh, the partner who has been violent towards them does not have access to them while they heal, recuperate, and find a, find a, a way to go on with their life. Some of the other comorbidities that I think do require uh, your expertise and psychiatric expertise would include uh, bipolar disorder, mm-hmm. uh, PTSD, uh, trauma, and suicide. I think those are those get to that level where I think the primary care physician has to you know understand the the in respect that the <laughs> level of intensity that that those disorders can sometimes present I, I mean i would almost feel as if i were in your shoes a sense of, of overwhelmed with all of the various things that are having <laughs> to be assessed in in just what we're talking about and the patients are coming to you with a physical complaint or some sort of um, bizarre feeling in their stomach and and you're having to assess if this is anxiety causing addiction caused by addiction is there's domestic violence that's a lot of things that once upon a time there would be a social worker who could come in or there would be a therapist there who could kind of help with that assessment process is there is is there some division of power within the the practice over there that the the practitioner is not having to do all of this by themselves 
Um, so I think I think that in our situation, we're fortunate uh, in that we're still training. So we do have uh, attending supervisors that will help, you know, really rein us in and and give us the resources and the guidance to say, hey, this is out of the, we like to say out of the scope of our practice. Right. It's um, a great phrase to get into your brain. <laughs> and, and we say, this isn't something that we're comfortable hand- handling and we'll make sure that we send uh, that patient to the right person. We never give somebody no answer. We always like to either, uh, we, we like to provide them with, with an answer and so we will send them to somebody who will uh, hopefully have a better answer for them. It is a, it's quite a burden, all of the things that you have to have to know about, learn about, and be, and be able to handle. Well, and I was just thinking in the press right now, you guys are getting all the blame for the opiate crisis. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <And> unfortunately, <laughs> there, you know, somebody somebody has to uh, get the blame for things. But I think that um, you know, primary care physicians uh, still uh, prescribe the the vast minority of uh, prescriptions for for opioids. And that's something to take into consideration is that we still are a minority prescriber in terms of um, prescribing opioids. But I think that's a good point in that uh, we we do we are actually an opioid free practice um, in the sense that we we do not. Uh, uh, prescribe, and so we will uh, send folks out to the appropriate uh, treatment centers for that particular issue. Good. Excellent. When we come back, we're going to talk a little bit more about other ways in which a family practice physician can be important in the treatment of addiction. Thanks for listening. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. Hello, I'm Dr. Mike Karuchak. Have you ever wondered what doctors talk about amongst themselves? If you do, join us on the Doctor's Lounge and hear the doctors' conversations amongst themselves. Join me and my co-host, Dr. Hal Schertz, every Thursday morning, 8 to 9 a.m. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. 
Thank you for listening. Welcome back. This is Detailing Addiction, and I'm Dr. Susan Blank. Thanks so much for listening. Today in studio, we have a special guest, Dr. Josh Kerner from the Gwinnett Medical Center Family Practice Residency, and we're also joined by David Donaldson from the Atlanta Healing Center. We've been reviewing the uh, vast array of things that a family practice doctor needs to know about and be aware about in their patients, and they have a, a... Patients that may be two months old, and they have patients that may be 100 years old. So you have to know about a lot of things and a lot of different ways in which these substances not only affect them in terms of withdrawal or intoxication, but also in terms of uh, how they might affect the body. At the break, we were talking about two of the most common substances that many people kind of forget or don't really consider how impactful they are, and that's alcohol and nicotine. Yeah, so alcohol and nicotine are, are uh, very very easily uh, overlooked substances in terms of their um, their havoc potential and just how much uh, damage they do to uh, people's bodies. And so um, as uh, primary care physicians, we certainly have to deal with the complications that can come up from using these types of substances. Uh, So in particular uh, with alcohol, we see, um, at least in the, the from the pediatric standpoint or the pregnancy standpoint, we do see um, fetal alcohol uh, disorder uh, for uh, for women who are drinking uh, during their pregnancy. Um, we do see um, alcohol withdrawal, um, especially in the hospital setting, um, and that can include uh, delirium tremens, uh, which uh, increases you know the risk for for a patient dying, uh, and that's unfor- that's an unfortunate uh, condition. And important for people to know, you can die from alcohol withdrawal. Really important for people to know that. Yeah. Um, so as far as uh, other complications that you can get from alcohol uh, misuse, um, or even uh, even if you just used it properly over a period of time, you can uh, get nervous system um, degeneration. Mm-hmm. Um, you can um, get various um, cardiomyopathies uh, affecting the heart. Um, you can get gastritis affecting the gastrointestinal system. And additionally, uh, severe liver disease um, with uh, end complications being cirrhosis and uh, hepatic failure. Unfortunately, there are patients that, uh, that that their livers unfortunately just stop working after a period of time because of their alcohol use. Um, we do see pancreatitis um, in the hospital, uh, especially a lot. Uh, patients coming in who uh, misuse or abuse alcohol um, are at risk for pancreatitis, and it is a pretty pretty painful condition for anybody that's had pancreatitis, will tell you, um, and it is a, a common cause of that. But then additionally, it can cause pancreatic cancer and other various um, malignancies, including uh, mouth cancer, throat cancer, esophageal cancer, colon and rectal cancer, liver cancer, and also uh, breast cancer. Uh, so those are some things to think about. Uh, but and interesting that you said for people who even use it appropriately, you can, you can still experience quite a few of these things if you use it appropriately over a long enough period of time. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there's, there's obviously no, I don't, I don't, I'm not aware of any studies that have, have just looked at, uh, at regular use and their complications, but this is just complications of alcohol use in general, not just people who, who abuse it. Yeah. 
Yes. Because that's not really something you hear in the press. I mean, certainly yeah. from our end, we know about a lot of cancers that are exacerbated or caused by um, regular continuous use of that don't meet the criteria for addiction or dependency. Right. Um, but certainly it's not something you hear in the general public. Exactly. Yeah, and um, in addition to uh, the above uh, things that I mentioned, um, you can also get metabolic complications. We do see that in the quite frequently: low sodium levels, low sugar levels, uh, low potassium levels, low magnesium levels, low calcium levels, low phosphate levels. Um, it does increase your uh, risk for infections, uh, increase your risk for gout, which a lot of people have. We do see that in the clinic uh, quite a bit, people with gout, and that is a, a common cause, and alcohol is something to definitely avoid for patients with gout. Um, and like I said, increase your risk for infection, so uh, people can get pneumonia and skin infections and uh, mm -hmm. deadly complications, including sepsis, yeah. So it can have a widespread, <laughs> pretty powerful effect and David, to your point, um, even people who are using it in um, moderate to low risk uh, level of alcohol consumption can be problematic. Another probably common substance that you have to deal with is nicotine, particularly here in the South. We have a lot of folks who use either cigarettes, um, cigars, or smokeless tobacco. Yeah, so nicotine is becoming a, a big problem, um, especially with the um, the vaporized products as well, in addition to uh, regular tobacco products like cigarettes and chewing tobacco and cigars and things like that. Um, and so some of the uh, issues that can present with long-term use of uh, nicotine tobacco um, include, especially for the, the in inhalant products, um, COPD, which is... Um, such a terrible um, condition for uh, for people that have it. Um, you know, they're on multiple medications that that cost uh, a lot of money. Um, they're you know at reg they're uh, having to have regular follow-ups with uh, with either their primary care doctor or their pulmonologist. They have to get uh, screenings for um, lung cancer and things like that. Um, and uh, at some points, uh, their lungs get uh, so weak that they uh, ultimately need uh, to carry around a portable oxygen uh, tank at home. And so uh, I think that's something to keep in mind with this is that it's a pretty dangerous uh, uh, chemical over the long period of time. With a tremendous impact on their lifestyle. Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. Uh, in addition to uh, the COPD, which is the chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, you can get other um, cardiovascular diseases with that. Um, you're uh, at increased risk for diabetes. Um, you're at increased risk for dementia. Um, poor wound healing is uh, especially important for uh, patients that uh, are about to undergo surgery. It's uh, something that uh, pretty all, all surgeons will ask their patients, um, are you smoking, and, and things like that. And it's a huge deal because it uh, impacts uh, how well their, uh, their surgery will go um, after the surgery. So that's something that's easily overlooked. Um, Two other things that are, are very important, too, is that uh, it is associated with uh, poor perinatal outcomes, which I'll uh, mention a little bit. Uh, but for women who smoke, um, it, it poses a great danger to the uh, developing fetus. And then after the baby is born, uh, for those who uh, do continue to smoke, um, it is increased. Uh, it does give you an increased risk of a childhood asthma and things like that. So it's pretty uh, pretty harmful substance. 
Smoking in particular is one of the ones that when we're dealing with them, we often see them when it's become a in-stage issue and they've, they've definitely got the COPD or they've got some of the other real obvious um, consequences of it. <coughs> but I imagine you're seeing some of these people when it's a little bit earlier in the game and you're able to have the conversation, particularly moms with, with children or something, to help them get motivated to quit sooner rather than later. Um, um, I'm curious in terms of how those conversations tend to proceed. Yes, yeah, so um, like I was saying earlier, I think empowering the patient and really um, giving them the information to help them make the best decision possible for their health um, is super important. I think that uh, we have really good medications to help people quit smoking and such great alternatives uh, to help with that um, uh, during the pregnancy that uh, I think that's a good conversation for for women that are expecting um, or planning on uh, having a child to have with their primary care physician to really help them uh, focus in on uh, the health of their child. And I think that um, for a lot of women, uh, focusing on the health of their child is is uh, a very important uh, topic to discuss. And I think that your opportunity as a as a family practice physician to find those moments when people are really motivated to be able to stop their use of alcohol, stop their use of nicotine, and um, to identify and help them get to treatment for other disorders is really important because you you have them when they're motivated when they've been given a diagnosis we'd like to thank you so much for being with us today and we'd like to thank all of our listeners and we look forward to seeing you next week on detailing addiction perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction if not you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. Cook Immigration Partners is your passport through the immigration maze. Whether it's help with e-verify in your business or help in how to document a new employee under the new I-9 rules or if you marry a foreign national, Cook Immigration Partners is your best choice for a legal advocate. Call us today at 866-286-6200. That's 866-286-6200. Or visit us on the web at www.immigration.net. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. 
they can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.